Welcome to this episode of the Breakdown, a podcast for all things product, entrepreneurship, and everything in between. For this episode, we are breaking down the experience of Trisha Lab, a senior product manager from Walmart, who is working on supply chain automation and innovation. She's also a senior alumni who graduated from the Innovative and Integrated Product Development Program. Without further ado, let's step into this episode of the breakdown. Trishala is my schoolmate when I started in CMU, and let's start it from your early days. So you graduated from Waterloo in 2016 with an economics degree, and then you had around like six years of full-time experience at like multiple companies, including Shopify as a business development. Aurum, I think that's a startup as a product leader. And then you went to a YC startup as a strategy director. Meanwhile, you also co-founded two communities and the medias. It seems like you are playing a double agent, crazy life, and trying to live the life to the voice. So I'm super curious what was the journey looks like and what is the exactly things that motivated you along the way. So the journey for me, it's it's hard to introspect on a journey because I I feel like I'm still in the weeds very much, like building my career, and I feel like I'll only be able to understand the journey after some time has passed and I've looked back. But there are some things I can say about the journey so far. I think it's been largely non-linear. So I've you know there's been a lot of ups and downs, changing fields, changing domains, you know, changing industries. There's been a lot of ebbs and flows. So it's looked a lot like a jungle gym compared to this, you know, linear trajectory that we often think about our uh, our careers in that way. So that's one thing I can say about it. It's been a challenging journey, but it's also been so fulfilling in so many different ways um, that I know we'll get into. It's been a lot of moving. I think I've made a lot of moves, like I said, cities, jobs, companies, careers. I started in business development. Now I'm in product management. So I think there's this journey of reinventing myself that is like really core to the whole experience of building my career. It's also largely been about maintaining like some form of individualism and just unapologetically going after my interests. I think when I was like in high school, what I would hear about people building their careers is like, you know, you stick to a field, you grow in that field, there's this linear upward trajectory of growth and oh, true. You peak at some point and then you might even plateau, right? Or stay there. I think my career and journey so far has been about exploring all my interests you know, being able to look back at my career and say, hey, I, I did the things I wanted to do. The second I found something interesting, I pursued that. I created opportunities for myself. I think that's kind of what my journey has been about and what I think it's going to look like until, you know, the day I decide to sort of maybe take a step back. But that's kind of what it's been about, like betting on myself, making choices and just being true to who I am. I guess your other question on what motivates me I am, and this might be like an unpopular answer, but I am very self-motivated and I always have been like since I was in like my teenage years to then undergrad while I was working, I think it's just unfair to expect people around you to motivate you, you know, like life is full, people are busy, everyone has something on their plate that they're dealing with. And so to put the burden of keeping you accountable on someone else is just unfair. And I don't expect that of anyone in my life. So I, I really motivate myself from within. I, I am my driving force. And I think that's been a, a secret sauce in my career so far. Couple of questions I want to follow up when you were talking about your career. So the first question is something I also get confused. You know, when you are trying to pursue different things and follow your heart, but like, Sometimes there must be some pros and cons because, you know, usually we are looking into the professional development into perspective of being horizontal and vertical. So like, how do you like balance when you're trying to change the field? How do you feel like how much percentage of the skills were is transferable and how yeah. much is like, you know, it's totally you have to start from nothing learning from scratch? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I think that's that's 
part of the challenge of, you know, like shifting contexts and like moving to different spaces. It's, it's definitely a real challenge, what you just outlined. The way I approach it. So for me personally, I think that the more life experiences, career experiences we can gather and collect and like retrospect on and, and just keep close to our heart, the stronger you become as a professional, even in your personal life, you know, life is really about a series of experiences. They're disconnected experiences. You know, sometimes they might be related experiences, but at the core, it's about taking all of that and then connecting the dots and making sense of it to move forward. So I think even when I look back at my career and I look at the mentors that I've really connected with or people that I've seen just be so inspiring in at the companies I've worked with, they're often people who've collected such a range of experiences, you know? And that's really taught me about how important and powerful it is when you try to develop yourself to be an interesting person. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I love everything you do because you're interesting. You know, you don't just do product management. You have a community you're building on the side. You've got these amazing life experiences of where you've lived and traveled and where you want to go. So I think we, we really deserve and we owe it to ourselves to embrace all those experiences. As far as career transitions are concerned, you know, the kind of career transitions I've made, I'm not going from being a sales or business development person in tech to being like an aeronautical engineer. Yeah, it's it's not a dramatic leap. I'm transitioning from sales and tech to product management and tech. So I think there is something to be said about the kind of leap you're trying to make. The, the bigger the leap, the harder it gets to transition. And you will have to kind of do the things you need to do to get there. But I think when you're within a similar domain, industry, context, you just have to be clever about you know, thinking and, and being able to answer how do these dots and experiences connect and then tell that story to the people who you want to work with. Um, and I think if you can tell that story well, and it's convincing and your passion comes through and, you know, you have, that, that's really the main box you need to check when you're doing career transitions. This is an interesting point. I remember Stephen Jobs have a really famous quote, which is called, when you look for words, you feel nothing. But when yeah. you look backwards, all the dots are connected into line. But yeah. you were saying that you are, it seems like you were trying to connecting all the dots by yourself. So like, it seems like there is some like differences in this two theory. Like, how do you think it? Yeah, I think for me, it's like to be able to connect the dots. When you look back, you have to proactively collect the different experiences, right? There's nothing to connect if you're linear and you have this tunnel vision, right? You might have a few dots to connect, but they're all similar and it won't really teach you much about the world. So the the thing I, I believe wholeheartedly in connecting the dots, and I'm so aligned with that quote that you shared, um, but I also believe in like to connect it in the best way and to really build a colorful career and, you know, find meaning, you've got to go broad with the experiences you seek. Um, and honestly, I, I think the the younger you are, the more important it is to do that. And I, I've seen that in my own career trajectory. In my early 20s, I went, my career was like this. It was so wide. I chased every experience, every volunteer opportunity, things that were so different. I deliberately pushed myself to, to gather that experience and kind of learn from it. And now I think as I transition more into like mid-career, I, I feel like, I, okay, I have a sense of what my interests are, what I'm naturally good at, what I have a genuine passion for. And I feel more willing to sort of converge a little bit, but still, you know, be able to seek different experiences within that. So that's my, my approach. And I, I think a lot of my professional approach with this connecting the dots thing ties back to my personal life because growing up, you know, I grew up in so many different countries. So my whole, you know, early childhood, young adulthood was all about seeking different personal experiences and then connecting the dots that that's where and how I derived meaning it's what kept me going and it, it just taught me so much personally that I started replicating that approach in my professional life and so far there's been no regrets about doing that <laughs> oh, amazing I think you are generally doing a lot of things together and for the for listeners knowledge so Trisha is doing community entrepreneurship product management, and previously some other roles. So like, 
how do you balance so many different roles? And you know, do you have some like tips to handling all the things at the same time? Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on your personality type. Like it's it's really hard to give an all encompassing sort of advice or suggestion to people because we're also we're wired differently, right? For me, and I think that's where it starts. You've got to be self aware. Like you have to understand what am I, you know, wired for. What works for me? What doesn't work for me? I think I spent a lot of time um, in my early career, like even like when I was in university during undergrad, just I spent so much time with myself as an international student. I'm sure you you experienced that as well. Yes. I had so much time on my own when I was an undergrad to just reflect on like to understand myself. And that really set me up for success because by the time I was out there, out of school, ready to sort of start building my career, I knew exactly like, you know, what, what's a routine, what's a schedule that I'm wired for. So I think that's really important. The first and only tip perhaps I can give on this front is like, be self-aware. For me, I've always known since I was like really young that I love changing contexts. Like when I switch contexts, when I go from building an Instagram community to building a product at Walmart, to creating content for my show in Canada, I thrive in that kind of environment, like context switching works for me. So I've always known that I need to build a career that allows me to switch context frequently. But I know a lot of people in my personal life and professional life who would be set up for failure if they approach their career in that sense. You know, like my partner is an excellent example of that. He loves to go deep. You know, he wants to have narrow experience, really go deep technical expertise in a particular subject area. And he thrives when he does that. So that's why I think self-awareness is so important. The other tips I can give you as far as kind of like balancing, I think you have to have an approach to organizing your life and, and knowing what your priorities are. You know, I don't definitely don't balance like everything in my life. But I'm very clear on my priorities and I'm clear on because personal and professional, it's a blurred line. Right. And both these lives impact each other in ways that are just like it's it's so heavily intertwined. So for me, like I know that if I'm going to do all these things in my professional life, I might only have the bandwidth in my personal life for close friends and family. And so you have to pick and choose, right? Like, what are your priorities in a given moment? So I think prioritization, ruthless prioritization, and it's such a PM thing to say, <laughs> but ruthless prioritization in my personal life has really helped me organize my professional life and pick sort of, place my bets in, in the places in my life that I think are most valuable to me. Gotcha, gotcha. Good tips. So be self-aware and also prioritize. Yeah, because we all have, you know, the same hours, but how you choose to spend it and the decisions and choices you make around that is is on you. And I think that really helped you, you know, pick the balance. But I, I also don't want to make it seem like, you know, having multiple career uh, roles and, you know, projects that you're working on, it's, it's not the one best way, right? Like you can build your career differently. You know, I have friends who are very committed to the corporate career track and that's what they want to be good at. And that's what they do. And I think that's excellent for them. So you just have to know, you know, what, what do you, what personally makes you thrive and then organize your life around that. Yes. Yeah. First you should know yourself and then you can interpret this word and other people. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's dive into your product journey because you mentioned that actually you previously you were more into like media shows, community, and other like bit more like on business side and you know communicational side. So what like what what incentivizes you to break into product management? Yeah. Um, and how did you do that? Yeah, I think those are two big questions. So when I started my career in sales, I I loved like learning how to sell. And I think even as a product manager, you need to learn and know how to sell because you're constantly selling a vision or you know priorities. Like sales is a skill that I think is relevant to so many fields. So I learned that tool set and kit of sort of like sales skills back then. And I had moved on to this company that you mentioned earlier called or My Planet at the time. Now it's called Orium. And it was a software development and design agency. 
So while I was there, I was hired in a partnerships role, but I got so much exposure to product strategy, you know, putting together these product pitches. I had the opportunity to do so much more than sales. I was working closely with product teams and I've always felt it like how exciting it is to contribute to a product. And so when I was in those, you know, meetings, I loved those product conversations that I was in, but then I felt so stunted because it, you know, once the deal was closed, I was passing it on to our product teams. And then I never saw it again until it became a product and market. Right. And I was so removed from it. And so I got to a point where I was like, damn it, I really want to contribute to product. And parallelly, it was really interesting because I, I've always, I'm a curious person and I always think beyond my job. I think about careers. I think about the problems I'm solving, the domain or industry I'm in. And because of that, you know, parallelly outside of my day job, I would always get invited to speak at conferences. And it's really funny, even though, you know, the first three or four years of my career was in sales, I never or rarely got invited to speak about sales at conferences. Instead, I was invited to speak on technology, on society, on culture, on topics at the intersection of that, on product. And I was never in product. So a lot of my friends and family and mentors and peers, they they were like, you know, you should really consider a career in product because clearly that's the perception you're giving. You think very critically about products and you have a clear passion for it. And so that's I think that was the inflection point for me where I was like, hmm, maybe I should consider transitioning into product management. And so then I decided, okay, product management. Now, what is product management, right? It's such a new field in comparison to other careers. It's largely being defined today, right? And in every company, whether it's Tesla, whether it's Walmart, it's done differently. So I found it really important. Like when I looked at sort of PM responsibilities, I felt after five years in sales, BD and partnership roles that I had a good understanding of the communication skills. I knew how to work with stakeholders. I had a lot of the softer sort of non-technical skills in my roster and felt confident there, but I felt not as confident in my technical skills. And so that's kind of the, was the point where I assessed master's programs, programs that would allow me to still go wide with my curiosity and like understand human experience, but would simultaneously kind of upskill and train me on the technical kind of product frameworks, how to work with engineers, how to, you know, design research. There were so many skills that I had never really had the opportunity to be hands-on with. And so went to school, trained for that, and then came out of school and realized, okay, I have a pretty good blend now of, of the technical and the non-technical. And I felt like a great, like in a great place with the skills that I had to, to then formally transition into PM. So that's kind of what the journey has looked like, but I've always known, I think for the last two, three years, I've known that I've wanted to transition into PM, but it was a slow, challenging and very gradual transition because it's not easy to break into this field. And so I would be lying if I said it was a piece of cake. It was hard. It was really hard. There were days where I thought, okay, this is not a field that I could I could enter. And I'm sure you know we can go on to talk about job searching and breaking into PM because I have all sorts of thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, but I'm so glad. It seems like your trajectory, you're solving, seems like pieces of the puzzle have mm-hmm. been put together. Like, cause like you have developed your soft uh, skills in your previous career, and then you come to CMU to, you know, to really hone the technical skills and then, then boom, you are all set for being a PM. Yeah. Okay. It's definitely, it's, it's a tough field to break into and I'm sure we'll go on to talk more about, you know, how to successfully do that, but I'm, I'm thrilled I'm here on the other side of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you success? Yeah. You- <laughs> I think, you know what I coming out of, so I also moved from Canada to the U S and, and I think coming out of my career experience in Canada, I was like on a bit of a cloud nine. And I think moving to the U S while simultaneously transitioning career fields, it was a very humbling reminder of just how big, you know, this market is like North America in general, how competitive PM as a field is, you know, product managers, you don't choose to be a product manager unless you're highly self-motivated, self-driven, and you're constantly trying to improve yourself. Like I have not met a, a product manager who doesn't share those traits, right? We're, we're all like that. So now imagine being a job in a job market 
filled with personalities, just like you and I, naturally it's very competitive. And so when, you know, to answer your question on what helped me do that and what, how you can, you know, come out of that in a successful position, I think a lot of it is finding your niche. You know, you have to recognize at some point that there is, you know, one or two things that make me a different PM to you and that make you a different PM to me. What is that? I think when you reflect on your experiences and you're able to identify that thing and that, you know, that spark or that unique niche skill within an otherwise pretty broad set of skills, I think that's when you come out of it really successfully. For me, my niche was like being a user research centric PM, being a PM who really wants to delve into the problems um, from a user perspective, as opposed to more of a, a technical PM or a data driven PM. I think that was a niche for me. And also being an innovation PM was the other niche. At that point, I had primarily worked with a lot of companies that were building new products and bringing that to market. So I identified that as being, okay, I think I'm good at innovation. Now, innovation is such a broad term, that's a whole other conversation, but I'm good at that zero to one product management, product strategy, the stakeholder management required in that environment. And so once I identified that, I think it was, it was much more easier from there. Okay, okay. Too much things to follow up. Let's go through them one by one. So first one, you were talking about you are more like a user research centric PM. So tell me, how do you conduct user research? How do you make the user research effective? And how do you use user research to shape the or lay the solid foundation for your product? Yeah. I think there's a lot of variable factors, like how big is the company you work at? You know, is there a UX research group within your company? Because you can still be a UX research centric product manager, but collaborate with, you know, the more deeper comprehensive UX team. So there's all these variable factors. I think for me, user Carnegie Mellon, I think was a game changer for me on that front, because my program was entirely about, let's teach you all the UX research tools and frameworks that exist go out there and spend a whole semester on these eight different human experience challenges and practice, like do the interviews, do the survey design, use the frameworks, do the focus groups. The I think by the time I graduated from the program I was in at Carnegie Mellon, I was just living and breathing user research. Yeah. The, like I think it probably came in my dreams. It was, it was so second nature for me. So I think you there's a there's an aspect of it that involves being hands-on. For me, being a user research-centric PM, it means being able to, in my context now, which is supply chain, like go out in the field, speak to associates, speak to my operations partners within Walmart, for instance, and just really be able to ask them the right questions. But I think that's the biggest focus, like asking the right questions. Uh, being able to take in what they're saying, like truly listen, and then synthesize that and translate it back to my product counterparts and, and my you know scrum team or development team. That's kind of what I look at my role being as that kind of PM. Now within UX research, there's so much you can do. And there, there are, I think you need to partner really well with your UX research partners. There's, there's a lot of, it's a lot of listening, collaborating. You know, we can go into so many details with the actual frameworks you would use, but I think in an innovation context, user research is all about right questions, right frameworks. You know, not every framework is a good framework in an innovation context. And also just comfort in not knowing, you know, especially when you're building a new product, there's probably 99 things you don't know. And one thing, you know, and you have to be comfortable knowing that your first version of a product will likely have a lot of unknowns. And then to iterate and evolve and pivot from there is really like the game changer. And it, it requires being really open-minded. So that's my approach, you know, without going too technical into user research, just the the mindset is is very much about open mind, flexible mind. Don't be married to your ideas or solutions. You know, be open to really dramatically change them. Gotcha. Yeah, I have a follow-up question. How do you compose questions to your interviewers? That's a that's a really good question. Do you mean like when you're interviewing people? No, like when we are doing user research. How yeah you compose those questions like sometimes because like we are so deep and immersive in our pm men's side or technology men's side so we you like at least from my personal experience we will talk with non-technical person 
or salespeople or customers, actually they're totally outside the bubble. So how do you compose those questions and to yeah. make the conversation really easy? Yeah, I think this is like, you know, survey design is a whole field in and of itself. And there's so much we can learn from survey design on how to frame the right questions. So they're not leading questions, they're not biased. And I, I think that's like an ongoing practice for, and it's something all PMs should work on. The way I approach it as a PM, so I usually have this long list of questions to explore. And when I'm writing the initial draft of those questions, I don't care about the framing or if there's bias in it, that, that all comes in secondary, you know, or future revisions of those questions. But as I'm having my preliminary conversations with my stakeholders and people that I'm working closely with, the users, whoever they might be in the context, I have this like brain dump of literally like, oh, I wonder what they would do in this scenario or how do they experience this today? Or what's their thoughts on this? And as I go through each question, I might add additional questions and kind of build off of those questions. And then once I've got that brain dump, that initial pass, I will work through versions of it. And I'll go through, okay, for each question, is there bias? I think that's really important. Am I leading them to an answer that I want to hear? So I go through and I have a series of different checks that I would go through. And then the other thing is, you know, recognizing I'm not an expert in survey design. So then I go to people who are, if they exist, the teams that I work on. And I ask them, hey, would you phrase this differently? If you don't have that resource or that survey design expert in-house, then go to other PMs, you know, go to other partners that you work with and ask them, hey, uh, how do you interpret this question? Do you feel like I'm guiding you towards, you know, a particular answer? So I think you just have to talk about your ideas, your questions to explore with different people and refine it as you kind of, and go through multiple iterations. That's how I go through questions. And it's funny because I do the exact same thing when I am interviewing guests for my show. You know, I'll do the same thing. I'll do an intense amount of research on that guest that I'm interviewing. And then I will start refining it. I will, you know, categorize themes, sub-themes, much like what you're doing on this interview. You know, I don't think it's dramatically different. The only difference is that you're you're probably going to want to be a lot more concise in a survey and you know <laughs> limit the number of questions you're you're asking and and frame them slightly more appropriately but it's it's no different to pre preparing for a podcast like this right the process is the same and i think that's why it's been easy for me to take on that part of product management because as a content creator and someone who you know interviews so many people um, I, it, it's kind of like a second nature skill. I really enjoy putting together. I have no issue with coming up with questions ever. Um, and in fact, if you speak to Ming Cheng or a mutual friend or anyone else in my classroom or my class at Carnegie Mellon, they will be the first to tell you that I, I would, I'm, I'm always asking questions. If there's silence in the classroom, the, the professor would be like, Trishala, it's time for you to, to ask a question to break the silence. So I think that's just, you know, a skill that I've developed through the multiple experiences I've had. Gotcha. I will double check with Ming Chen later after this call. <laughs> Great point. Keep iterating on your question list and also ask for other people's feedback. And I also want to add the third point is which I found it very useful when I conducted user research is try to learn the speaking habits of the people you're talking with and copy it. Yeah. So this will remove tons of friction you communicate with them. So that's something I also found really, you know, useful along the way. Yeah. And the other thing I think that's really important is like, especially if you work at a large company or even if it's not a large company, but you have data available to you, you know, I try not to ask questions um, that I could find answers to elsewhere. So for instance, you know, I could have a survey with like 50 questions I have in my mind, but maybe 30 of those questions, the answers exist in an internal, you know, tool, platform, a survey that was done previously relatively recently. So I think it's really important to also look back like historically, okay, what do we have data on and eliminate the questions that you might not need to ask, right? So you're really focusing on what you want to learn in the experience you're building. Gotcha. This also applies to like the general work style. So yeah. in the in the workplace, we have a tons of questions every day. So before we're reaching out to our, let's say, stakeholders, engineer, designers, or even our peers, let's just like usually i just google it and just quick quickly double check or ask a chat gpt or brad to say it is a something very like common knowledge and then if it is not 
than just you can ask. I guess that's also apply generally. Yeah, and I, I think in the context of user research, it's also important to sometimes like you you we there are so many unknowns and we know that. But, you know, it's not always effective or efficient to go and ask questions on all of those unknowns. So sometimes you have to also lean into assumptions and like making, you know, having a hypothesis that you need to test. So I think something that is so underrated in user research as a PM is just having the confidence sometimes to form an opinion. You know, I might not know so much about an experience, but I, I should be able to form an opinion or at least have a hypothesis or or something, an assumption, something that I hold that I want to test. I think you need to have that to be successful as a UX researcher, not a UX researcher in PM, because you, there has to be an anchor, right, that you, you throw and kind of build from there. Well, let's take a short turn to product innovation. So yeah, you mentioned that you third talent is probably on the product innovation beside the you know, research and all of your like communication and curiosity. So what is a product innovation? How do you drive product innovation at Warma? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. So for me, product innovation is, you know, when, when I was at Carnegie Mellon, the first conversation, I remember this so clearly because the discussion we had was just so like thought provoking. Um, but the first conversation we had was like differentiating between innovation and invention. And I think a lot about that because, you know, we, innovation can mean so much, right? It can be a slight improvement to a process. It can be a gigantic leap of incremental value. It's really a spectrum, right? And it can, and based on where you sit or what you're trying to do on that spectrum, the processes and frameworks can change so much. For me, Product in innovation is about improvement. And, and like I said, the level of improvement can vary, but it's about taking a process, a workflow, and trying to build a product or service or just a solution to improve that process or workflow, at least within the context of supply chain, which is what I've been working in for the past several months. You know, I, I, I think a lot about workflows as being like the crux. And innovation is how you improve that. How do you make it more effective? How do you make it more efficient? I think product innovation varies, whether you're consumer facing or building internal software, it can look really different. I spent six years in consumer facing tech in retail and e-commerce, and now I'm in supply chain in retail. So I am realizing that it's dramatically different. The approach is so different based on the context and environment. But I think at its core, Product innovation is all about, you know, learning and being very, very open to failure because it's likely that your first concept, you know, it should evolve. It should not be a product that is, you know, stays the same for decades. That That's not something to brag about. So you have to be so open to like seeing your product evolve, learning from the feedback you're getting, making dramatic changes. So I think failure is such a big part of innovation and, and people talk about it all the time because it's, it is really the crux of innovation. So that's my like high level view on product innovation. Gotcha. So my question towards product innovation is how do you assess innovation? What is the metrics for innovation? How, like when, how does the product perform? Like what is the signal? of the product performance, you will say, okay, this is an innovative product or this is an innovative solution. Yeah, I, so I have a different perspective on this. I don't view innovation as like a product, you know? Innovation for me is much bigger than that. It's much bigger than a product. It's a mindset, it is an approach, right? It's a process in and of itself. It's a culture, like I'm, I'm currently on an innovation team and I can feel that it's culturally different. You know, we're motivated by a different set of goals and objectives and a different approach. So for me, innovation is more like, it's more like an adjective, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a word that describes what we're doing, but it's not the product in and of itself. So when I think of like, okay, what's an innovative product? The first thing that comes to mind is like the level of newness, right? So how, and, and you could put put this in a matrix or however you want to visually represent it, but how new is this in terms of the kind of change it could influence? So if I'm trying to build a product that's 
creating a uh, improving a process. The KPIs are not going to change dramatically between a, a product and an innovative product. It's the same thing. But I think the level of change is really what the differentiating factor is for me when I look at innovative products. And I, I feel like that's true for like consumer products. It's true for B2B software. Generally, it's it's probably a fair you know statement to make. So that's how I view innovation. KPIs, like I said, it's all so subjective and it's it's so different based on the context that you work in. So it's hard to say that, hey, okay, this is the KPI. I think that there are metrics you can assess for like a health check on innovation. And those are things like, you know, that you would assess even otherwise. So from a product perspective, like you want to keep tabs on sprint velocity and story points and, and you know, things like that to see, okay, how, what's our cycle of of innovation, like how quickly are we moving? You might want to keep tabs on iterations within a over a period of time. Um, but otherwise, you know, the KPIs, I don't think there's dramatically, you know, new KPIs that you're monitoring for innovation. It's the same sort of product KPIs you would monitor, you know, elsewhere in other contexts. But for me, it's really what differentiates it from other products is, is like I said, the mindset, the culture. It's it's more that that's different to me at least. It's it's a really hard and it's a question to answer because it's like, I think after moving to supply chain, it's really shaken the ground under my feet because I've realized, you know, it's so hard to comment on product because every context is different. Every company does it differently. You know, even within retail, I had primarily worked at tech companies trying to do retail. And that's been a fundamentally different experience to being at a retail company doing tech, right? So there's so many factors that it's hard to, to pinpoint you know, what makes innovation different. The the only thing that kind of stands out to me is is the level of change. Uh, tr- too much to talk about. I think there is no need to include all the things into this episode because listeners can go to Trisha's uh, newsletter, which is called the 100-year product. So yeah, I think she wrote a lot of great content about it's a a work in progress so I definitely uh, I try to post bi-weekly but it it, it's yeah it's it's called the 100 year product I love products that transcend you know time and trends even if they're not around like MSN messenger used to love that product and while it doesn't exist today I do believe that it was a foundation for future innovation and so my my newsletter is really a study of of products like that you know, what are the commonalities? What are the shared patterns? What can we learn from products that have done really well? And how can we kind of take that intel and, and define future products? So it's on LinkedIn and definitely would love to hear from anyone who kind of shares a passion for the topic. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, one more last question before we jump into the versus three question. So I can tell you are you have a really amazing public speaking skills. Any tips to improve public speaking skills? Yeah, that's a great question. Because I I think people think that it comes effortlessly sometimes, and it really doesn't. I am naturally, and it's this is like a shocking thing when people hear this, and they're they always think I'm lying when I say this, but I am like a deeply introverted person in my personal life. So for me, public speaking and being comfortable, you know, talking and sharing my thoughts and opinions, it definitely isn't an effortless thing. It's a skill I have worked very hard on for several years. And I say that because like if you're sitting there feeling like you lack the confidence to talk or, you know, to share your opinion or you feel like you can do a better job presenting at work, you know, know that it's a skill that no one is born with. You know, you might have a style of speaking that is natural to you, but the ability to communicate is is learned. And so what worked for me is YouTube. <laughs> I I just spend so much of my time on YouTube watch and I love doing this. Like for me the idea of a Friday night in is like having a a beverage and putting on YouTube and watching like interviews and panel discussions and like you know on a variety of topics. It can span from like Hollywood gossip to technology, right? But I I for the longest time, for years now, I can I just love going on YouTube and watching interviews and how people communicate. And we're so lucky that we have that as a resource today, right? Like for me to learn from someone else's style, someone else's approach to speaking, I don't have to go far. I, I have so much inspiration like at my fingertips. So I've leveraged YouTube 
an insane amount. I watch videos, I take note of what I like in certain people's communication style, and I emulate that. And that's kind of what has created my personal style of communication, because it's like really bits and pieces I've gathered from different speakers, and I've chosen what feels natural to me. And, and that's kind of been a huge resource for me. The other thing has just been doing it. Like, I know it can feel so nerve wracking to like take that first step and, you know, put yourself out there early on when I started my career and I knew that public speaking was something I wanted to get better at. I, you know, like I used my sales cold calling and email skills and I would personally reach out to event organizers, even when I felt so underconfident, even when I wasn't working in product management, but I felt I had a passion. I had an opinion, a voice. I would reach out to organizers and say, hey, I'm interested in being a panelist. I'm interested in being a moderator. I'm interested in emceeing this event. I would love to curate a workshop or a session. So I think deliberately, if it's something you want to get better at and you feel could really be a career accelerator for you, you know, seek those opportunities, even when you're underconfident. I think that's so important. And before you know it, you know, with a little bit of practice, you just become more confident and it's really like a virtuous cycle from there. Got you. You know, do you know, like your experience really reminds me about Warren Buffett. I think <laughs> previously Warren Buffett was also really, you know, get feared and scared being like talking publicly. And what he did is he intentionally go to a college and apply to be a professor. And, you know, in this way, like, hey, I watched one of his talk. In this way, he can, you know, go on the stage literally every day to hold yeah. his own, you know, public speaking. So I think this also works for me. So yeah. this is something you really need to, you know, take time to improve. Ah, and, you know, start, start small. Like the first events that I spoke at had like five or six people, you know, and then it started, like I did a few of those five or six people events. It's, then I started getting invited to the 20 people events. Then it was a hundred, then it was 200. And, you know, I, I can't share more, more details, but later this year, I'll be speaking on a stage to 30,000 people. And so, you know, that's how, but that, that growth has happened over 10 years. Like I started my career, my public speaking in like 2012, 2013, and it started with a conference that I hosted, a TEDx conference for my university. And then I realized, oh my God, this is such a great way to just, to feel, build my confidence, to meet cool people, to share back a little bit of what we learn in our everyday life with a broader audience. And then I just kept going. So like I said, it's much like product management. You know, this is also an incremental thing. And before you know it, you'll be on a stage speaking to thousands of people and it will feel so effortless and something you actually look forward to. But when you start, it's always going to be rough and embarrassing and scary, but you just have to kind of weather through that if it's something you want to do. Gotcha, gotcha. Thank you, Trishala. All of those are really good tips. Okay, time to ramp up. So let's go to our routine three questions. So we usually ask us three questions in our episode to, you know, to leave some resources to our listeners and the newsletter readers. The first question is any books or podcasts or newsletter you can recommend to the, your listener beside, beside your own newsletter, the yeah. product. <laughs> That would be very salesy of me if I just said 100-year product. There's quite a bit. So I I would encourage, you know, seek various sources. I am someone who reads a little about a lot. I follow multiple people and I'm constantly, you know, I, I it's hard for me to pinpoint like one or two things I would recommend you subscribe to. So I would say like, it's literally a button you have to click. So follow multiple people on LinkedIn, on other social channels and consume as much content as you can and then form your opinion on things. So for me, like some from a product perspective that I actively follow, there's Lenny's podcast, which is like my favorite go-to product management resource. And he's got a newsletter as well. He was a former Airbnb product lead and he just interviews the coolest people in product with like the boldest opinions and inspiring career trajectories. So I think there's something for every kind of product manager in that series. So I would definitely recommend that. Retail Brew, I work in retail and I live and breathe retail because I love retail so much. So Retail Brew is, is a newsletter by Morning Brew. 
And it's just such a great way to start your day. You know, every day you'll get this scannable one pager on the latest in retail, everything you need to know. So I, I religiously start my days with Retail Brew and just make sure that I'm up to speed and, you know, I have an understanding of what's happening in the broader industry beyond, you know, my companies. And then this sounds really, you know, amateur, but Google Alerts is really so great because sometimes I feel like there's so much that is out there and it can be so overwhelming to find the right people and things you want to follow. And sometimes I just want to scan like the updates and the highlights. So I will put keywords of all the topics I'm interested in into Google Alerts and then get a daily digest where Google does a work for me and will show me the most important highlights um, for those topics. So I rely heavily on that for just like, you know, general knowledge and, and updates on things. So I'd say that those are my favorite kind of non-book related recommendations. For books, and I, I, funnily enough, I wrote a post about this on LinkedIn just yesterday. There are some books that I absolutely come back to all the time. The, the main one is this book called The Art of Choosing, because I think choices in decisions are two of the most instrumental things we have in our lives, and they can really change the trajectory and course of your life. Yet we understand so little about it, you know, like how, what's the art and science behind making a choice and the psychology behind decision making. So it's a wonderful book by a business professor at Columbia Business School. Her name is Sheena Iyengar. And it's it's the first book, you know, I read in my like early 20s. I come back, I carry it with me, even though I move so much, I have a physical copy of this book, would highly recommend it. And the other book is, you know, if you find yourself working for a company with a founder or an entrepreneur who's written an autobiography, I think it's so meaningful when you work for a company and you read that founder or entrepreneur or leader's book to understand their perspective on the company and the history and where the company is going and some of the foundational you know, cultural elements, values. I've done this at every company I've worked at where a book has existed. So when I was at Dick's Sporting Goods, I read the founder's book. And when I'm at Walmart now, I've read Sam Walton's book called Made in America, and it just makes me feel really good about my day job because it, it gives you some context on what you're doing. You know, what are you building off of? It keeps you rooted in, you know, the history, which is so important to know sometimes, like you said, to move forward. So I would highly recommend if that applies to you, you know, seek out a book like that um, or just in general, you know, Phil Knight from Nike has written a great book as well. It just teaches you a lot about the journey of building something good. I believe in your taste. We'll definitely check out later. Next question. Who do you think is the most successful people in your life? That was a really, I, I was like brainstorming answers to the worthy three. And I really struggled with this question because I was like, oh, what does successful mean? And I think I, I wrote down some really vague, generic, it might make absolutely no sense to your listeners, but things that in my mind, I think are successful. So I was thinking, you know, who who do I think is successful? People who are healthy, I think is at the top of that list. You know, mind, body, relationship to others. I think if you are healthy and know how to find balance, no matter what that looks like in your life, I consider you so, so successful in your life because that's a really hard thing to do. And it's it's arguably the most important. I think the second thing is people who have found a way to make a living doing the thing they love. Um, I think if you can monetize your passion, so that every day doesn't feel like work. And if you're that person who's been able to do that, that to me is success. And the other thing I had was people who bet on themselves. So when I'm going on LinkedIn, when I'm meeting people at conferences, when I hear a story where I'm like, oh, damn it, this person really bet on themselves. Like, you know, they they gambled on their talent, their skills, and they came out of it so much better on the other side and so much stronger I look at those people and I, I really do consider them to be so successful, no matter how that bet pans out for them. I think to to be able to bet on yourself is is arguably like the most inspiring kind of sense of self that I wish to emulate. And then the last thing was, and this is, is related, but like, you know, for whatever it's worth, it's people who make money while they sleep. Because <laughs> I think if you're, if you're making a living doing what you love and you're making money while you sleep, that for me is like success because you're making money and you're investing it in the right places. And I think wealth is such an important thing to discuss more than money. And I think people who've nailed that and are able to do that, I'm, I really do consider them successful. Do you know, like this really reminds me of Team Ferris. 
<laughs> like he's the one firstly pop up in my mind when you are talking about people can make money will yeah. me. Yeah, and I, I think it's so important to 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 think about that because passion is great, but if you find a passion that pays the bills and more, and you you are clever about where you put your money, I think yeah, these were just some you know definitions of what I consider a success, and there were so many more that I could list out. But the idea is, you know, I don't think there's a a persona or like you know a perfect image of a successful person in my mind, and my idea of success is perpetually changing with every phase of my life. So I, I don't know if you can relate to that, but I feel like what I thought was successful in my early 20s is very different to what I think is successful now. So I think that's also, you know, it's subjective. Agree, agree. Love your answer. And last ever question is, what's your favorite quote or something you really deeply believe in so, one sentence? There, there are two things. So the, I think, okay, a quote that's really been coming back to me a lot lately, or just a concept, I think. And I've heard it like 10 times in the last two weeks from like four different people I've interacted with. So I feel like it's like really the universe telling me to pay attention to this. But it's kind of this idea that like, once you make a decision, the universe kind of aligns and conspires to help you get to where you want to go or where you want to be but it all lies in making that decision it's come up on like my instagram feed so maybe that's like the algorithm really you know understanding what i'm searching these days it's been shared at a conference i went to recently so i think like decision making and just that concept of make decisions and you'll get to where you want to be sooner is is kind of one thing that's top of mind but my go-to eternal favorite quote, and it's funny you mentioned Warren Buffett earlier, so I'm going to mention it back to you. But Warren Buffett has this really perfect quote, and I come back to it so often. It's basically, you will continue to suffer if you have an emotional reaction to everything that is said to you. True power is sitting back and observing things with logic. True power is restraint. If words control you, that means everyone can control you. So you have to breathe and allow things to pass. I just love that quote because I am a very emotional person who largely leads with my heart, or that's my natural impulse at least. And I think reading that and the way he's framed it is so perfect. It just really, it's taught me to take a step back sometimes and like control the heart and lead with the mind where I need to and have a, a, a healthy balance of both kind of guiding me through life. So I, I do come back to that often, but it's it's too long to sort of tattoo on my arm. So I'll have to just... <laughs> Go back on my Instagram feed to see it. <laughs> Great. I guess this will be a last question. So now we are going to ramp up this episode. Thank Thanks for having me. And that should wrap up this episode of The Breakdown. A huge shout out to our speaker, Trishala. And if you are interested in connecting with Trishala or the host, Tilly, feel free to reach out to us on LinkedIn. And if you are a CMU student who is interested in product management or an alumni in this field, don't hesitate to join our Slack community and follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram. See you on next episode.